I'd like to begin with a quotation from Henry David Thoreau, one of his journals. It was um, written January 10th, 1858, and it was from his journal about wildflowers. The north side of Walden Pond is a warm walk in sunny weather. If you are sick and despairing, go forth in winter and see the red alder catkins dangling at the extremities of the twigs. All in the wintry air, like long, hard mulberries promising a new spring and the fulfillment of all our hopes. We prize any tenderness, any softening in winter, catkins, bird's nests, insect life, etc., etc. Thoreau had an amazing way of being inspired by um, the beginnings of spring and getting through the hard winter. So I think that that sense of um, no matter what's happening, that to prize any tenderness, you know, to value so much any tenderness, any softening, of heart, it, that that um, is most important. One of the, I think, hardest lessons to learn in, in our practice, but it's life, is that um, liberation is absolutely, absolutely not dependent on any experience whatsoever that's happening. It, it just isn't. Anything can be happening. You can be liberated with any experience that's happening. It's the quality of awareness that you're bringing to the experience. It's the, it's the relationship you're having with an experience that matters, not the experience itself. This, sometimes it, it's like it has to be kind of hit over our head so many times, but it's like, it's just... The, the relearning of that, the relearning of it over and over and over. And that's why we really emphasize that this is not a, state, a, a state-oriented practice, so that you can value any experience, boredom, sleepiness, happiness, everything, you know, just anything that's happening if there's a quality of, rela- of relationship, if the awareness is liberated, then the, the, then the experience will be liberating. So of course one would prize any tenderness or softening towards any or with any experience. This is not something that's... Um, easy for us to remember when we're angry and we want the anger to go away. Or when there's extreme pain in the body and we want it to go away, we think we're going to get liberated if we make it go away. <laughs> that, that that would be, you know, a liberating awareness. 
but that's not how it is. And often I think the first few days of retreat, it's, it's so, um, it can be a bit of a grind because often we're seeing so much that we want something different to be happening than what it is. You know, it's just, it's important to see that or we can't get free. But it's, it takes some strength of awareness to be able to get that, oh, that's just wanting. It's just another mind state that will come and go. We don't have to get fooled by that. Sri Nazargadatta Maharaj um, said that it's affectionate awareness that brings reality into focus. So this is again why we're offering the metta with the vipassana because often um, the awareness isn't necessarily... um, easily developing that tender, tender awareness or kind or uh, affectionate awareness. And of course the Vipassana is all about bringing reality into focus. What's so interesting about Vipassana practice is that that real growing understanding that how important relaxation is. So, so it, the, it, the mind won't deepen meaning, it won't, it won't really drop in and connect with what is happening versus what we want to be happening unless it's relaxed. When it's wanting something different, the attention can't be with what is. It, it's that simple. And being with the nature of how things are, we're, we're often trained to think that nature excludes our humanity, that nature doesn't include our body sensations, our emotions, our thoughts. But of course, we're all, we are just totally made up of nature. What's also quite important and beautiful about this practice is that you don't have to... Deep is such an elusive word because it it doesn't mean you get a shovel out and start digging. It means that you just uh, are aware of whatever comes to the surface. It's just... If you're with just what becomes apparent, that's deep. It's it's that... um, it's often a subtlety of what's becoming apparent versus trying, trying too hard. So one aspect of this practice is that it tends to restore our humanity. It's restorative of our, the goodness of our humanity. And one of the um, I think one of the ways that we learn to live out our karma or live out our kama is the understanding that no matter what, somehow we manage to get ourselves here. 
we, meaning we manage to get born. You know, no matter how much you might philosophize about it, the reality is that we did get here. And if no matter who you are as a human being, we are born into a world of what they call, the Buddha called six sense doors. So the doors, meaning we all share, we share a lot of this with, of course, other beings, but we share that we all see, we all hear, we all smell, we all taste, we all have these fathom-long bodies, we all um, think, we all have emotion. And this, this practice we're offering is a six-sense-door, moment-to-moment awareness. One of the translations of doors is sensitivity. And whether you um, tend to appreciate the word door or sensitivity, certainly one grasp that, that these are holes. <laughs> that we're not just made up of steel. We're actually so connected um, with everything all the time. It's um, one of the reasons it's hard to pay attention is that it's overwhelming and we're not trained. So if you look at it technically with the, the ear door, when we ask you to pay attention to hearing as it's happening, we're trying to connect the attention with the speed of sound or with seeing, it's actually, if you're seeing concurrently right as it's happening with the speed of light. And then we wonder why we get a little distracted or that it's hard. It's like, this is not easy. It's fast. And these are the easy ones. We start with the easy sense doors because those, those are going slower. And, you know, we can all appreciate that you can try to really observe thinking and it just zaps you after a while. Cause it zaps you because it's going so fast. I'm not sure anyone ever tried to measure it. It's so fast. Whew. Smell, taste, body sensations are moving so fast. So when, you know, the, the kind of, um, the, there's a word gross and there's a word refinement. If you, if you understand the word gross in the context of refinement, not as like, oh, disgusting gross, but gross meaning um, the opposite of refinement. Uh, often our awareness, because we're so busy and we're, we're doing so much, the attention is gross, not disgusting or negative, but it's just gross. And when you come on retreat and, you know, you start to try to be aware of the movement of the breath, that's, that's trying to connect the attention to air moving. And we wonder why it's hard, but the air is really like refined, you know? And so if you start really being able to be aware of the stepping of your foot on the earth and you notice hardness, the element, earth element hardness, it's much easier. Earth element is a little less refined and that's good. If you sit for 45 minutes, eventually you're going to 
touch base with earth element. And that, that the hard aspect of it, the, uh, the soft side of it is softness. The pleasant side of earth element is soft. So there's a, a, a often a more refined aspect of the elements. Hard, soft is earth. Air is um, light movement, tingling. And the opposite is like a throbbing, stabbing. You know, we know those. We, tight. I bet you wouldn't all vote for tight as your favorite way that air element expresses itself. <laughs> and yet it, it does a lot, right? Unpleasant, pleasant aspects of the elements. Fire element. You know, we we tend to, human beings, we tend to have a kind of narrow bandwidth. We like cool or warm, depending on a lot of conditions, but we don't tend to like hot or cold. So there's, again, that range of experience within the world of temperature or fire element. Water, it's, it's wonderful to just look at. We love flowing. Yeah, streaming. Do we like it when the dam is stuck inside? Probably not. It's, it's again that kind of range of how the elements manifest themselves. And what we call my foot or my body, my leg, my hand, it's just these constantly changing um, expressions of the elements. Not me, not mine, not I. extraordinary to explore. Uh, The mind door, the heart center, mind and um, heart are considered the same. Chitta, the consciousness's seat is in the heart center. It's the knowing, knowing hearing's happening. Knowing smelling's happening, knowing thinking's happening, etc. Knowing body sensations happening. It's all in the heart, the consciousness, chitta. And when we think of door or sensitivity, I think it's maybe the most tragic lack of training that we have, of how vulnerable and sensitive this the sensitivity really is, to be able to apprehend thought, to see it clearly. I mean, just, it's amazing, right? To be born into these sensitivities, it's so amazing. And we have, we have, we start out with so little training in how to be aware of them with, with wisdom and compassion. So that the heart can actually be boundless, that the metta can be boundless. That's the, that's the nature of the, the, the human heart. Of course, for it to be that, it's like this extraordinary sensitivity crystal. Um, it has to be what? To be that sensitive, it has to be that vulnerable. And as I was saying last night, there's a way in which um, 
the last thing we're ever taught to be is vulnerable. So we tend to have an aversion to that vulnerability when what is appearing is painful. We think that we should be able to control it and that it's a failure in our part that we're perceiving pain, yeah, that's, that something's wrong versus that something's right. That this is how things are, that, that we're in the sensitivities, each sensitivity has a range of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. That's how things are. A range of the joy and sorrow in relationship to that. So to be able to see into the very nature of how things are, this is the Vipassana practice. And classically, uh, it's said that when you are able to be mindful, with it can be a few seconds. It's like, and I'll go into it a little more, but it's, it's when the attention can connect with something real, not an embellishment or a fabrication or a concept about what's appearing. But when we can s- sustain our attention a few seconds with a sound directly, not through the thought process, that insight can happen. And that the insight is, it's called insight meditation. It's the insight, the first insight into anicca is insight into change. That whatever appears in the universe or appears within or without anything conditioned will pass away. I remember the first time when I was in Burma, I heard um, one of the Sayadaws that I liked a lot describe um, the, the instruction on being with the breath. And he said, you know, that Vipassana is being with the nature of how things are. So if you notice the beginning of the breath, if you see it beginning and you see it pass, that that's being with the nature of how things are. Every time you, you witness the passing of the in-breath, not even the out-breath, that, that if it's, it, you can notice that hundreds of times, but it, it, you might not understand it. You might not understand or realize the, that that's the nature of everything. But some, at some point, whether you're watching a sunset or the petals, the magnolia petals falling, right? Or whatever you're paying attention to, you're with the step, but it ends. It's like, it's the, it's the nature. It's just the nature. It appears spring. Spring, there's so much beginning. But there's also a lot of endings in, in spring. Just hang out in the garden. And then it's, it's um, because of anicca, because of impermanence, there is dukkha. And the dukkha... <clears throat> translation usually I think takes a few words um, and often again it's helpful to hear and listen but to kind of at least kind of connect with one of the words like the undependability or unreliability of experience is a great way to describe dukkha 
It's because everything is changing. It's because the nature of anything appearing at the sixth sense doors to change, then of course experience is unreliable, undependable. It makes for vulnerability. And anatta, the third characteristic of existence, of all existence, not just human beings. Um, it's really important, again, to connect these, the anicca, the dukkha, the anatta. It's because experience is unreliable that we can't control it. So there's this uncontrollability. That's the nature of Anatta, that it, atta means self, anatta means no self. But if you, if you uh, were a permanent entity, you would, and you could control things, you could control your thoughts, for example. That's the best example I like to give because, man, they're so uncontrollable. It's amazing. And it, it's not to say that we can't move the furniture around and do a few little manipulations. It's not that. It's, it's more just um, understanding that uh, a lot of what is appearing is out of our control. It doesn't mean we don't try to change some things. Of course. There's, there's another, there's a lot of aspects to anatta. I'm just doing a, a, a light brush stroke, but there's a way in which it's helpful to also understand it means that nothing exists by itself. And that when we encourage you to um, take a closer look and a closer look and a closer look over the days, meaning um, re- receive more directly, receive more directly, receive more directly. Um, you'll find that there is less and less solidity to what's appearing. And, and that's, that's an aspect of anatta. There's, it's, it's like if you took a microscope that I grew up with, <laughs> I don't even know what they do now, but you know, they must, you know, if you look through most microscopes, modern, you probably see mostly space. If you, you took, piece of my finger, my thumb and just looked under modern microscopes, you wouldn't even hardly see anything anymore. It's that powerful. And the Buddha taught that your mind, your awareness can be that powerful. And it's seeing clearly. It's not like the microscope is distorting anything. It's seeing it more closely and clearly. It's one perspective. And therefore, of course, the meaning of that is that, of course, then we don't take experience as personally. That's an important point. So often it's helpful to go through this a little bit again. It's like there's an ordinary happiness that comes from often, you know, we want something and we get it. So, you know, you you might want a certain kind of coffee, you know, or tea, or 
a certain zafu or a certain shawl or, you know, any, you know, a certain, you like a certain sitting. There's a certain kind of happiness where we will feel a kind of happiness when we get it, but it's very transitory. And then the Buddha taught that there's no greater happiness than peace, which it's a deeper serenity. It's a deep serenity that is not dependent on experience. And it's a much more dependable kind of happiness, the the peace of it. And he taught that this deeper kind of contentment is the greatest kind of wealth. One aspect of the training is that we help the attention learn how to connect with something and stay with it. And and that is concentration. And the first part of that is what the Buddha called in Pali, vitaka. And the second part of it is vichara. So it's it's the ability to um, connect, sustain, connect, sustain. So say um, I was going to stand right now. If I want to connect with that experience, you, you try to say, okay, intention to stand. You, you notice the beginning, but you might be halfway through and lose it, right? So you, you were able to connect and maybe sustain part way, and then you don't make it all the way through the end. No problem. There's always another moment <laughs> to start to try to connect and sustain. It's all, all that we're really doing. Um, and so I'd like to give you an example. I think it's a good example. I give it every year, but it's, it's like, I'm going to ask you to listen to the sound of the bell. And just, it's, it's just fun. It's fun to see, rather than it be a, a, a exercise in perfection, it's more an exercise in exploration that you see, well, can my attention be with the beginning, middle, end of that sound? And it's many things that are happening. You're seeing if you can receive the, the, the textures and vibrations of the sound directly through the ear door and to notice when you start thinking about it with no judgment. There's no judgment. There'll be the movement toward a concept about it and the, or about how you're doing it. <laughs> the judgment, that's just judging. And then see when you bring it back to the sound and actually how long that process happens. So that's connecting, sustaining, and concurrence. Concurrence means with the flow, the current, the flow of how it's happening. And with the flow, you can think, well, it's just when you can connect and sustain through the sound. But over time, you see, with the flow will include the thoughts about it and the judgments about it. That's when it gets really fun. I can see you're all just thrilled.
I, I don't think I can bear the thrill that's happening in the room right now. <laughs> okay, ready? <laughs> It's fast and it's slow. And if you didn't hear it, that's okay too. You know, it's really just really being with how it is, you know. Through the ear door, noticing the thoughts about it without judgment. So ultimately, non-conceptual awareness includes the thoughts about it if you're aware of thinking and not getting caught in them. Isn't that fun? (laughs) Yes. I agree with myself. So this movement of life, life is alive. If, you're, if your breath stopped, you'd be upset. You'd get dead pretty quickly, you know? So, you know, you don't want these, the life to stop. Even when you sleep, seeing, hearing, smelling, touching, thinking is happening. It's happening, happening, happening. It's fast. Um, so there's this flow of aliveness happening. And mostly we're living at the tip of the iceberg. We're mostly missing it. It's not, and we haven't been trained. We haven't been interested in being trained. I think that um, it's helpful to learn which sense door is the easiest for us to be concurrent with, to be non-conceptual with, and to strengthen that. And also to start learning. You learn from that sense door how to shift to other sense doors. And when it gets too hard, you shift back to the easy, similar to the um, metta practice. And, and as we start to understand that there's this flow of experience happening at the six sense doors, you get to see why um, an anchor is taught and the reason it's taught is that it's, it's a compromise. It's like a pit stop. It's, it's a, a rest. It's not as restful as being able to just uh, drop in and be with this non-conceptual flow of experience. But there'll be something that stops it, usually aversion or attachment. You know, there's some, some way we disconnect. We can't be with it anymore. Or it's overwhelming. And then you take a breather by being with the breath, or you just with one, one thing, momentary. You take a small thing to be with for a while as a rest, as a kind of seclusion. So whether it's hearing or being with hands or sitting, you know we offer many different anchors. Um, but it's important to know why. And over time, 
for a while it becomes just a rhythm of letting the anchor go, being with the sixth sense to our flow, and then anchoring, being with the flow. And that sometimes you just don't have to choose. You just let it rip. The anchor will choose itself. It's just like there's so much training. It just will do itself. And it's, you know, heaven forbid you go to the anchor when you shouldn't. What? Like, what is that? Like, why would you feel like that would be a problem? It's all kind of... Uh, the epitome of this is to just love the lo- love learning, the gift of learning, of exploring. So I don't know if I explained compromise well, but the, the compromise with the anchor is that you're still choosing something that's moving. It's not fixed. So that you'll, you'll often hear us talk about the uh, differences between a fixed concentration and a momentary concentration, but the motivation behind that is what matters. So a fixed concentration would be like if we turn the lights off in the room and we just had one candle and it's dark, it's nighttime, one candle, and we asked you all to just keep looking at the candle. And if knee pain happened, you'd ignore it and look at the candle. If thinking happened, you'd ignore it. If a sound happened, you'd ignore it. If fear happened, you'd ignore it. Ignore, ignore it, repress, repress. You just keep looking at the candle. And the goal of that practice is tranquility and calm one-pointedness, and it is a great rest. Why? Because we're ignoring everything. We're repressing everything. And that I'm, not, I'm not underestimating that, that it can be really helpful, because it's helpful to take a break, to have everything calm down and stop. So the the other kind of concentration is momentary, which is the sixth sense door awareness uh, practice, which you're you're going um, moment to moment concentration. So that's why we teach concurrence, that you learn how to have your attention um, stay with one thing as it's changing, because life is moving. So with the breath, it's always changing. With sound, it's always changing. Smell, always changing. But, and it takes a lot of practice, right? It's like learning to ride a bike. You, you ride it and you fall so many times. Most of us forget. And this is a billion times harder than learning how to ride a bike. So, you know, you, you, you try to be with, like, you'll just, you let go of an anchor and you'll see there's a sound, a sight, a thought, a smell, boom, probably better anchor, maybe. It's a compromise. Why is it a compromise? Because it's still moving. It's not fixed. <clears throat> so you're learning how to be with change in a small way. It's like having training wheels on. I know, I still remember when I got my training wheels off. It was great, you know. (laughs) 
in this practice, you kind of have to keep pitching up the training wheels uh, and then, you know, going off them and putting them on. It's a little more um, long-lasting. <clears throat> in other words, it's not the best metaphor because we can start to think that it's a regression to go to the anchor and it isn't. It's a, it's a support. It's skillful means. I think a lot of people get that idea, so I want to reinforce it. Going to the anchor is a stabilization. To me, it's like going in the garden here. It's more like, you know how the garden, you know, there's all this wildness, and you go in the garden, it's like, you know, it's like civilized, right? It's just, you know, it's protected, really protected. Well, the anchor protects you from the sixth sense door wilderness. It's not a regression, it's just different. Sometimes you go into the sixth sense door and sometimes you go to the anchor. A lot of you have probably heard of um, Hanshan. He was a cold mountain poet. He, he wrote and lived over 1,200 years ago. His poems were found on walls, written on little walls um, in the monasteries. Most of his poems were lost. He said, once I moved to Cold Mountain, everything was at rest. No more useless, mixed-up thinking. In idleness, I write my poems on stone walls, accepting whatever happens like an untied boat. That, that, that's so beautiful, it just oh, accepting whatever happens like an untied boat. That's the that's this practice. And and if you kind of explore what, what that feels like, how does that happen? Well it's receiving an experience without trying to control it. And I, I think really it it's so paradoxical that the the instruction is so paradoxical, but it's how it is. It's like you you work one part of it is really connecting with what's happening, what with what is, not what we want to be happening, but what with, with what is and receiving it. But we I think we feel it's like this wishful thinking that if we finally show up for it, um, at least I could control it. Right, you know, it's like we have that part of us that it, we have to accept that. Of course, we want to control if we show up for it. 
And if you fight that, it just ties you in a knot. It, it gets tighter and tighter rather than softer and softer. And it will feel paradoxical, that sense of connecting but not controlling. Connecting but not controlling. And it's really an art. It's an art of life. Uh, it's worth every moment you put into it. Uh, serenity kind of springs from this ability to receive and not control and you can practice it if you're even if you're needing like to take a time where you just observe the oyster catchers or stand next to the cedar trees or sit in the um, outside in front of the dining room and just gaze at the ocean and sky um, you, you take the time to receive. It's a, it's a, you take the time to, to sip your tea or eat the food. or So much of it is really not being in a hurry. We had a, a student from long ago, and um, long, long ago, that uh, had worked at a bank most of her life, had kids, married, and just managed to, when she started to get into this, she would do one retreat a year. And um, one of the things I noticed about her that was unusual was at a certain point, kind of a while into her practice, uh, when she would go to work every day, uh, she took as her practice right speech at a bank. <laughs> and um, people she worked with hated it. Like she just wouldn't gossip. She wouldn't talk about anybody that wasn't present. She really did it. And I noticed a huge shift in her practice when she did it. Like she just, I can't believe how hard that must have been where she worked, but she did it. She did it at home. Um, and it kind of, that resolve with that gave her kind of resolves with other things that I saw over time. And she retired, her husband died, she lost her home, she moved in with one of her children in the south from, from New York. Um, Last summer, she managed to ordain as a nun for two weeks. 
And, and, you know, people will think, oh, you were ordained for life, but she did it for two weeks. She did it well. It had a big impact. And she just, um, this year she just wrote me, after have to reread it, I, I just got it recently, but Bhante Gunaratna, I think a lot of you know, is quite old, very old, and she spent some time with him, and she, she just was so moved by, he's so, so almost about to die, so old, and um, the equanimity with which he's meeting every moment was so inspiring for her. So last year when she did a a retreat with us, um, this is what she wrote in a little note at the end, and this is the end of the talk. As a teenager, when I got my license, my friends and I would go to the Jersey Shore for the day. As we left the highway and got on the road leading to the ocean, there was a change in the air. I could feel the cool dampness on my skin. I could smell the ocean. I knew it was there even though I couldn't see it. Then it was in front of me and I entered it. You know where this is going. I have no doubt about liberation. I feel it. I sense it. I touch it. Liberation is right there to see and touch. Thank you with a heart and mind that tastes liberation, even in a very small way. And you know, this is... What I saw her learn over and over, she did things, it would look like it's in a very small way, but that's always how it works. It's one moment where you see clearly, not ten. And we tend to go for so long a time and we get so disappointed that we can't hold on to the these times where we see clearly, but these times when we see clearly have such intense impact, such amazing impact, uh, and getting disappointed we can't make them last is part of the um, ego (laughs) getting its uh, wake-up call. It's getting attached. So let's sit for a few minutes. (laughs) 